Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Untangling Climate Finance. This is our first episode of 2024, so I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. I hope that you all had a relaxing, peaceful holiday season with family and friends, and I hope everybody is feeling re-energized for the year to come. The planet needs saving, and it isn't going to save itself, so there is plenty of work for us to do. Continuing with a new tradition I started last episode, before I introduce today's guest, I want to read a review that was left from a listener on Apple Podcast. This one comes from Timber Wood. Timber Wood says, A great podcast tackling the complex web that is climate finance and making it all that much more comprehensible. The array of diverse market experts always keeps the episodes interesting and expansive. This is a climate emergency and we need massive amounts of capital mobilization. Untangling climate finance makes this tangible. Thank you for the kind words, Timberwood, and you are not wrong. Climate finance is indeed a bit complicated, yet extraordinarily necessary. So hopefully this podcast is helping clear it up a bit. Okay, so in this episode, I talk with Dr. Lambert Schneider. We connected in October of 2023, so just a heads up that this conversation was recorded a few months ago and before COP28. But boy, I don't even know where to start with Dr. Schneider and his credentials. He is currently the research coordinator for international climate policy at the UKU Institute in Germany, which he shares later on in this episode was a place he dreamed of working at ever since he was studying his bachelor's. But man, this guy is an absolute star when it comes to carbon markets. He used to serve as an executive board member for the Clean Development Mechanism, so he's been a part of carbon markets from the salad days. Since then, he's been crucial to the development and evolution of the voluntary carbon market, the Paris Agreement Article 6 mechanisms, and recently, he was part of the assessment framework team for ICBCM. His involvement truly has roots in carbon markets, methodologies, and frameworks all over the world. So let's tap into Dr. Schneider's treasure trove of a brain, and you might want to get out a notepad because he is going to share some thought-provoking sentiments. Hi, Lambert. Welcome to Untangling Climate Finance. I appreciate you joining me. How are you doing? Hi, Jay. Good morning. Um, nice to speak to you. I'm doing well. Looking forward to our podcast. Me as well. So why don't we start off by just telling me a little bit about yourself, your name, where you're from, where you work, these kind of things. Yeah, my name is Lambert Schneider. I work with Ökoinstitut, that's a research nonprofit think tank in Germany. And I've been working for 20 years on international climate negotiations, climate policy. I'm part of the EU delegation in the negotiations. Um, but we also do a lot of research on carbon markets. Um, that's one of my focus areas. Perfect. And so can you tell me a little bit more about your role at the Institute? Um, obviously, you just said carbon markets, but what are some of the, the projects that you're working on and what does the Institute focus on as well? Our institute uh, is quite big. We have 200 people and we work on a lot of themes. Um, I work in the energy and climate division. And so we work on the whole energy transformation, um, all aspects of it, whether it's buildings, transport, power sector. We do a lot of policy advice and research. So that's that's a nice combination. So some basic research, some modeling, etc. but also 
advising the EU Commission, uh, the German government, etc. And so I'm research coordinator for international climate policy. So I'm 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 leading research in that area, and and my team is called Carbon Accounting, and we kind of look at the details how you quantify carbon emissions at all type of levels. So it's very methodologically and challenging sometimes, and we really look in in detailed equations. Great. And we're going to dig into carbon specifically in a moment, but the work that you do there is not just in Germany, right? It's uh, on a global scale as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Our team works very internationally. I participate in the climate negotiations, as I said, and uh, we have an initiative, for example, which is called Carbon Credit Quality Initiative, where we assess credit quality, the quality of carbon credits globally, and I'm also part of other initiatives. Perfect. And if you don't mind, maybe you can give me a little bit of your past experience, because from my own understanding of reports and papers that you've worked on, you have a very impressive job history prior to the institute that you're at. So maybe you can also kind of walk me through some of the stuff you worked in the past that has brought you up to where you are now. Yeah, I, I actually started at Institute where I'm now. So I went when I was at school. I, mm-hmm, full circle. Yeah, when I was at school, I read a report about how to create a world with 100% renewables and energy efficiency. And that was from Institute. And I, I thought, well, that's a place I want to work. And then during my studies, I applied for an internship. They rejected me. Then I reapplied. Then then they took me. And that's how it all started, right? So I really wanted to get there. But then after 10 years, I wanted to have a change. I thought, okay, I have done this for 10 years. Will I stay forever? And then I went to the United Nations Climate Secretariat. So I was a UN employee for a couple of years also working on carbon markets, but also on the negotiation process and supporting the UN negotiations on climate change. And then I was associated to Stockholm Environment Institute, which is uh, another global think tank working on carbon markets. And then a couple of years ago, I went back to to my roots, if you will. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's cool. I didn't realize that you, you started there and uh, the adage, if you at first don't succeed, try again. So your second application worked out and sounds like the longevity of it's worked out very, very well. Yeah. You know, this podcast is Untangling Climate Finance. A lot of the work that we do is also in the carbon markets, the voluntary carbon market pricing. Many of our clients are involved in the the VCM one way or another. So, and of course, this is the the breadth of your experience. You have extensive work working on the the VCM, the Paris Agreement, Article Six carbon market, and the clean development mechanism that came before all of these. So I'd like for us to pivot and discuss these a little bit. And so to begin, can you briefly explain to the listeners what the the clean development mechanism or the CDM is? Yeah, the CDM was invented in a in a last minute in the negotiations in the Kyoto Protocol. It's a carbon crediting mechanism, and the idea is that you can invest in climate projects in developing countries, and for each ton of carbon that is saved, you get a certificate, uh, certified emission reduction, and then these certified emission reductions can be used by industrialized countries which have targets under the Kyoto Protocol to fulfill their climate targets, right? And so the idea is really to combine development with climate 
and uh, on the one end to support developing countries in achieving sustainable development to avoid that they lock in high emission levels and on the other hand to make it cheaper for industrialized countries to achieve their climate targets. That was the original idea and then it evolved over time being also used in the voluntary carbon market. Great. And what is the status of the CDM today in 2023? Well, the CDM is about being phased out. This is because the Kyoto Protocol ended and it has been replaced by the Paris Agreement, uh, which was adopted in 2015. And under the Paris Agreement, we have a new mechanism, which is called, it's a quite technical name, Article 6.4 mechanism, right? And that's the successor of the clean development mechanism. So we have a new mechanism under the Paris Agreement, which is about to, where the rules are now being made, which is about to start. And with the start of that new mechanism, the clean development mechanism will phase out. Right. And we're going to talk about the Article 6 market in the Article 6 mechanism shortly. But before we do switch over to there, because you've worked on the CDM and you've worked on the uh, the Paris Agreement market, uh, what were some of the major pitfalls of the CDM that you witnessed or some of the criticisms that it received that then hopefully are being built upon in this newer iteration? Yeah, I think maybe before going so going there, I think the idea of the CDM is kind of a nice one because you you can think, okay, it helps developing countries doesn't matter for the atmosphere where you reduce the CO2, etc. But in practice, it turned out um, that there were major challenges. I would say the biggest challenge is uh, what we call the lack of additionality. Additionality is the question whether a project would be implemented anyways or whether it would be implemented because of the carbon credits. And if it's implemented anyways, then the atmosphere doesn't see a reduction. And then if you issue carbon credits and then someone else can use them to offset their emissions, it actually increases global emissions. And there have been several studies which pointed that many of the CDM projects were not additional. So that's maybe the biggest issue. Then there were issues with overcrediting. So one credit not really representing one ton of CO2, but less. And, and that occurred in a number of sectors, in a number of methodologies, that the methodologies were just too optimistic of how many emissions a project reduces. There were also some criticisms on its environmental and social impact. There were some instances of human rights violations, accusations, etc. So I think these were the three main criticisms to the mechanism. Got it. Thank you. And now, shifting gears to the Article 6 carbon market, we ideally are just a couple years away from a, a functional Article 6.4 carbon market. I've read recent studies of the, the group that's working on it that says that some of the people think that we're on the 90 or at the 90% mark, uh, which is pretty optimistic. I mean, it's been in the works now for a few years. But can you summarize the Article 6 carbon market a little bit more now that we've talked about the, the, the CDM? Yeah, I think a big difference uh, for the whole Article 6 market is that under the Paris Agreement, all countries have climate targets, whereas under the Kyoto Protocol, only industrialized countries had climate targets. And so 
the fundamental shift is that the Article 6 for mechanism takes place. It can take place in all countries, could even take place in the United States and Germany, not only developing countries. And all these countries have climate targets, right? And so one of the big discussions in the negotiations was therefore avoiding double counting. So if Brazil sells a credit to the United States, it's important that Brazil doesn't count these emission reductions towards its own target, but in balancing its own target, uh, subtracts that, right? And so uh, it doesn't claim the emission reductions. And and so that's that's a fundamental change. And then a second fundamental change is under the Kyoto Protocol, the focus was really on economic efficiency and cost reductions. And under Article 6, the focus is really about enhancing ambition. That's very much emphasized in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So the idea is really that if you engage in such type of carbon trading, it should lead to more ambition both in the host country where the project is implemented and for the buyer. And that also requires kind of a, a shift in philosophy of how you implement that. Um, for example, what's important is that the emission reductions don't accrue all to the buyer, but that they are shared between the host country and the buyer because then the host country can use part of the emission reductions to achieve its own target and therefore, it can contribute to the ambition of the host country, while all of the mission reductions are financed by the buyer. So that's that's really a shift in the idea of compared to what what we saw under the CDM and also the voluntary government. Right. So it's a everyone's in it together bit of approach. And do you mind uh, because some of our listeners might not be completely familiar <clears throat> with the market and. We just use some some terms that I'm familiar with, and obviously you're familiar with, like buyers and host countries. Can you lay out just a very simple scenario of what, like a, a project taking place in a host country would be, and then it generating credits in a buyer? Just a very simple scenario so that our listeners can kind of visualize what what this might look like. Yes, sure. Maybe maybe I can do it with an example. Um, so Switzerland is one of the major country buyers at the moment and so they entered into bilateral agreements with a number of countries with Senegal with Ghana with Peru and so then in Senegal or Ghana projects are being implemented these could be renewable energy projects energy efficiency projects uh, projects abating non-co2 gases um, so all type of different climate mitigation activities and then the emission reductions from these activities are being monitored. And if that is successful, then you issue so-called internationally um, transferred mitigation outcomes, kind of carbon credits under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement called ITBOS. And then these are transferred to Switzerland as the buyer. And the Swiss government can then count these ITBOS towards its climate target under the Paris Agreement. And Senegal or Ghana need to make sure they don't count these emission reductions towards their target. Right. So it's a little bit of mathematics, basically. We'll get into double counting. You've touched on it a couple of times, but one of the, as you said, biggest concerns is making sure that the the accounting uh, is clear and accurate from both a reaching net zero perspective, but also from <laughs> our atmosphere doesn't really care about the accounting that's on us. And so... 
where do you think things currently stand with the the development of the market? How far away would you predict that we are from seeing this up and running? Yeah, I think we are nearly about there. I mean, it will take a little bit more time. Now the next climate conference uh, is in Dubai at, at the end of this year. And I think at that conference, the main lacking rules of Article 6 will be finalized. So, so the big the big chunk was already finalized two years ago at the climate conference in Glasgow. And then we made some progress in Sharm el Sheikh, which was another climate conference last year. And in Dubai, there's a good chance that most of it would be finalized. And in principle, the mechanism could, the mechanisms under Article 6 could become operational thereafter. Then there's the supervisory body, um, which is overseeing the, at the new Article 6.4 mechanism, the successor of the clean development mechanism. And that body has been working quite hard this year. They are quite divided on some of the issues, so it's very political negotiations. But they are supposed to adopt a, a package in October 2023, and then mm, some more important stuff next year. So I would say... In a year or so, that market will start to really operate on the ground. Excellent. And let's put ourselves in uh, an example where it's up and running and, it, and it's uh, working efficiently. What are some of the opportunities that you see that will be presented by it, both for the buyers and the host countries? Like, what's the incentive to engage? Yeah, there are different there are different ways how this could be used. So first, there. Are countries like Switzerland who want to achieve part of their climate target through the purchase of Article uh, 6 emission reductions. So that's one use. Then there is an, an agreement uh, under another UN treaty, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, where airplane operators need to offset part of their CO2 emissions from airplanes. So they have legal obligations to offset that. And that will be a second market for Article 6. Then there could be buyers in the voluntary carbon market who say, we want these Article 6 Paris Agreement rubber stamped carbon credits rather than buying from the voluntary carbon uh, programs. And then some countries also say, we, we do voluntary action that goes beyond our Paris goals, like Sweden, for example, has a more ambitious national target than the EU target for Sweden is, and and they also want to buy these Article 6 carbon credits. So there will be actually different markets where these credits could be used. Yeah, and we are going to dig into that a little bit. I've got a couple of questions regarding that specifically, but let's circle back to overselling. And so I would like to hear your take on the risk of overselling specifically for host countries. And so as you kind of laid out, say, for example, there's a project in Ghana and they're generating credits and they have the option to sell all of those credits to Switzerland or reserve a percent of them or put them into a buffer pool or something like this. And so I've read various different reports and takes on this that Ghana, as an example, might want to hold on to 1% or 2% or 10%. And if they don't, it hampers their own ability to achieve what would be their future net zero targets. And so I'm curious on your on your take about the risk of overselling and also the best methods for a country to prevent this risk. 
Yeah, I think it is a serious risk. The reason is countries really need to plan how to achieve their climate targets. And that requires a lot of capacity, right? They need a strategy in what sectors can I sell emission reductions to other countries and still achieve my target. In principle, they have an incentive to only authorize. They need to authorize these sets, right? And so they have a control on what is being sold. And in principle, they have an incentive to only authorize credits where they think, okay, this is really something we cannot do on our own. Uh, we will not achieve these emission reductions on our own. But to do so, they, they really need uh, to make up their mind and think strategically how to use that. And in addition, as you said, I think it's really important that they retain a certain fraction of the carbon credits of the emission reductions to achieve their own NDC. And I think, frankly, that shouldn't be 1 or 20, 10, 10 or 20%, that should be 50%. I think that would be a fair deal. And I think Japan has following that approach in its bilateral corporations that a quite large share in, in the order of 50% sometimes was retained by the host countries. Wow. And maybe, maybe, maybe one more addition. I think there's also institutionally a, a risk, right? Because if there's just one institution in the government which is responsible for authorizing these projects and there's not so much oversight within the government of doing so, there's a risk that people think, oh, this is good, we will see some money inflow, these are good projects, let's approve them. And they don't think about the broader picture, what it means for the liability of the country uh, to achieve its climate target. And then the climate target is only in 2030. So if you have an administration right now, they want to see these projects, they may just approve and not think about the future. At least that is a risk. I mean, of course, we hope that administrations will make their strategies and carefully think about that. But we don't know, in particular in countries with, with very little capacity. So it really requires capacity building also to make countries aware of these risks. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, and unfortunately, the political situations in a lot of countries that are acting as host countries aren't so stable. And unfortunately, this creates potential risks down the road as ministers of environment change or you name it. But yeah, absolutely. The other big risk, as we have kind of talked about, is double counting. You've worked very extensively on the issue of double counting. And so I'd also love to hear your take on this as uh, how big of a risk is this? And do you think that we are positioned well, given the, the criteria and the guidelines that are being written and drafted up to actually address this? Or is there still more work to be done to make sure that the accounting is right on both ends from the buyer and the host? Yeah, that's really such a complex uh, topic. So in principle, it's simple. In principle, the idea is uh, the buyer of the ITMOS, the Internationally Transferred Mitigation Outcomes, can count these emission reductions towards its target, and the seller country should no longer count these emission reductions towards a target. And in principle, there are good rules on that under the Paris Agreement. But I say in principle because the devil is really in the detail, right? One fundamental problem is that under the Paris Agreement, countries have only what we call single-year targets. So they have targets for 2025, a target in 2025, in 2030, in 2035. But they don't have climate targets for 2027 or 2031, right? 
And carbon markets, they usually, they are not done in single years. They, they, the projects run, credits are issued for all years, um, emission trading systems have multi-year uh, budgets, etc. And so that's not compatible. That's one of the fundamental problems. And therefore, if you kind of do funny things, like you accumulate all your credits from non-target years and then you use them in target years, double counting wouldn't be appropriately avoided. And so then there were rules invented in the Article 6 negotiations to address that. They are approaches like averaging. You simply average in the target year what has been done in, over the whole period, etc. But whether that works well or not, depends on the trajectory of the country, on the target, etc. So in some cases, it can still lead to higher emissions um, to the atmosphere. And so the, the rules are not perfect, definitely. And there's one negotiation strand where we will consider next year what to do with, with these rules, how to address these risks. So this is something still on the table of negotiators, um, but it's unclear how it will be addressed. So I would say Overall, the rules, the, the general principle is good, and but there's there's some risks in the details still. Yeah, and I think that one of the the potential problem creators, obviously, is the VCM, right? Because uh, once the Article Six carbon market is up and running, the the voluntary carbon market that's operational now doesn't just disappear, and so you're going to have. VCM projects, VCM credits, and then you'll also have the Article 6 stamped or the Paris Agreement stamped projects and countries are still or entities inside of a country are still able to purchase and sell from the voluntary carbon market. But this all said, I'm very curious to hear your perspective on the interplay of the VCM and the Article 6 carbon market. Do you think that they're going to be at, uh, at head with each other? Will they compete or will they converge at some point? How are these two going to, to play together? Yeah, you, you will have, as you said, you will have two type of units in the future, right? Two type of carbon market units. One will be Paris Agreement authorized units. So the units where double counting with host country target is in principle avoided, where the host country doesn't claim the emission reductions. And then you will have non-authorized units. And these are from voluntary carbon market programs, but you will have both authorized and non-authorized units from all type of carbon crediting mechanisms, right? Because some of the voluntary carbon market programs, they can also seek authorizations under the Paris Agreement. So, so there's really interplay. And you will have these two type of units, and they are different. And there's a lot of debate on whether the non-authorized unit type, whether that can actually be used for offsetting. This has been debated in the voluntary carbon market for a couple of years, and there are simply different positions, right? There's there's one group of people, I think many people in Europe and the gold standard, who say, well, this is a risk and you shouldn't claim offsetting if you buy a non-authorized carbon credit because the country claims the emission reduction. Okay. So you're supporting, what you're doing is you're supporting a country to achieve its climate target, which is not a bad thing, but it's difficult to say I'm offsetting, right? And then there's a whole other strand of argument that doesn't matter. Um, there are two levels of accounting, uh, country, country level accounting and company accounting, etc. And as long as you, as you say that it's double claimed, there's no issue with it and you can still talk about 
offsetting. And so that's the position of VERA, of the, uh, of the VCS, of the Verified Carbon Standard, and of many actors, not all, but many actors more in the United States. And so, yeah, so there's really a divide, and that hasn't been solved, uh, and I'm not sure it will be solved. I think there will continue to be different opinions on that. Yeah, I'm with you there. Hopefully coming to a majority consensus, but who knows if that will ever happen. So we're covering a lot of ground here, but I'm taking advantage of the fact that you're an expert in this world and a lot of different elements of this space. And so I would like to talk about the history of carbon prices tied to the various markets. So I know that this is kind of a very overarching topic, but because you've worked in a lot of the different markets, can you give a bit of a brief history about how carbon prices have have changed or, or where they currently are today? Yeah, there's definitely not a single price. It's uh, different prices. That's and and then they change over time, right? Uh, but there are also different prices for different type of commodities uh, that are traded. So yeah, if you look to the history, the history of carbon crediting was that prices increased a lot in uh, 20 years ago when when the whole trading emerged. And the main reason was that the biggest carbon credit market at that point in time was the European Union emission trading system. So Europe had established a system, a cap and trade system, where 40% of Europe's emissions were under a cap and companies had obligations to surrender allowances and could trade these with each other. And then the cap went down every year. That's different from carbon crediting, right? And under that scheme, companies could use a certain share of uh, credits from the clean development mechanism. And that was driving the prices. And as the ambition in the EU ETS increased later, it, it dropped, but it increased at a certain point in time, prices reached higher levels and, and they reached 25 euros for carbon credits used in the ETS at some point. And then the market invested a lot and many people didn't have buyers and they continued to invest to invest into new projects. And there were thousands of projects under the clean development mechanism being registered in 2011 and 2012. And that led to a flood of credits. And then the prices started to, to, to fall. Also because a parallel mechanism, joint implementation, a lot of credits uh, came in from Russia and the Ukraine. And so there were different factors, but in the end, the price crashed to half a dollar per ton of carbon credit. So it, it basically, it really crashed the market. At that time, the voluntary carbon market was still very small. But then what we saw is in the last five, seven years that the voluntary carbon market grew a lot. And that basically at some point became more important than the compliance market as the European emission trading system, because at some point, no new credits uh, were being allowed anymore in the European emission trading system because of concerns about carbon credit quality. And so, so these, these bigger policy landscape influenced the prices. And then with the, with the surge of the voluntary carbon market and many companies taking net zero targets, demand increased and also prices increased. And in the voluntary carbon market, there's not a single price, but the price really depends on your project and um, how attractive it is to buyers. 
So some projects can achieve much higher prices than others. So to say an extreme scenario, if you have a very fancy technology that sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere and stores it in stones or as biochar in fields, um, sometimes people pay hundreds of US dollars per ton of carbon credit, right? And then the other extreme is that you can buy some old vintage credits um, from the past for one euro or one US dollar or even less. And then there's a whole range in between. Yeah. And then oh, should I also go in, into the, the price crash last year? Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened, what happened last year is that it became more evident that there are also considerable quality issues in the voluntary carbon market in particular with projects avoiding deforestation, but also with other project types. And that, that led to many buyers leaving the market and to uncertainty. Uh, many buyers no longer knowing, okay, what carbon credits are good? Should we invest in it? Should we not invest in it? And it led to prices falling considerably. So in particular for projects avoiding deforestation, where overestimation is really, really huge, according to different scientific reports, the prices crashed a lot by 80% in the order of more or less. Yeah. And so along those lines, in order to address that, because as you had said, prices have dropped and a lot of this is tied back to the integrity or, or what the market sees as the lack of integrity in the, the voluntary carbon market. You have worked, uh, I believe, on the ICBCM assessment framework or the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market. There's the two major groups, the ICBCM from the supply side and then the VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative from the demand side that is working pretty tirelessly at this moment to increase the integrity of the projects to give both buyers and sellers confidence in the quality of the credit and then hopefully prices will perhaps rebound back to levels that make a little bit more sense given the 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 finance that's going into it and then the quality of the product that's coming out and so you've been able to work on the assessment framework you i believe you also worked on the the core carbon principles from icvcm which the ccps is what they're called and can you go into what the intent is behind both the the assessment framework and the core carbon principles yeah, I think the 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 whole initiative started with the idea we want to scale the voluntary carbon market, right? We need more climate action. We want to scale that. And then people looking into it realized, oh, we actually have a quality problem, uh, a serious quality problem in the voluntary carbon market. And so we can't scale that because it doesn't, doesn't have sufficient quality at the moment. And then I think then the slogan of the ICVCM emerged, with, which is uh, build integrity and scalable follow. So the focus is currently really on the idea is to establish a global benchmark for higher quality carbon credits and, and to identify in the market those carbon credits which have higher quality. And so for that purpose, an assessment framework was developed. So that's basically a methodology how to identify higher quality carbon credits and some core carbon principles, which set out basic principles of quality. And then once these carbon credits are earmarked by the carbon crediting programs, which have to apply to, to the ICBCM, 
then trading of these carbon credits could potentially occur at higher prices. And uh, the hope is that companies will then prioritize these type of carbon credits and 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 only maybe only buy these which have the rubber stamp of the ICBCM, if, if you will so. Great. And regarding the assessment framework, there is definitely a lot of chatter, I think, at the moment that nature-based solutions might be left out. Is this a real concern, do you think? I don't think they will be left out. But as I said earlier, there are there avoided deforestation has drawn a lot of criticism and the current methodologies under VERA are that they lead to massive overestimation. And I think that's accurate. And so they should be left out, right? And currently that's the only methodologies that are approved for nature-based solutions. But VERA is in the process of approving new methodologies, which they say will have stronger integrity. And so possibly, possibly, I mean, still that's up to, up to the assessment, but possibly these, these would be better, hopefully. And maybe they can, they can be approved at, at some point in time. Also for, improved forest management projects, there are a lot of quality concerns, right? So it's not it's not that the ICBCM has any bias towards nature-based or non-nature-based. It's just that these type of credits have faced very serious quality issues, but they are not the only ones. They are also in other sectors, carbon credits, uh, which face serious quality issues. Yeah, you're right. Also regarding the assessment framework, now, looking back on the work that you've done, if, if Lambert could have one wish coming out of that effort, what would the wish be in terms of being able to scale the VCM? Because as you said, it a part of the, the goal is scaling it, or at least originally. I mean, my hope is uh, that the ICVCM will really only take uh, carbon credits, which are of really high quality, right? But of course, it's always a question about striking the balance between uh, how many carbon credits uh, you want to be traded and uh, and what quality they should have. So so where where to set the bar, right? And I think the ICBCM assessment framework includes many good elements. Uh, I think many rules are really good, but there are also some which are, in my personal view, too weak. Um, so, for example, the rules on addressing non-permanence are too weak in my view. So non-prominence means you store carbon, for example, in nature, and then maybe later it maybe reverse to the atmosphere. And so currently that's assured for a certain time period, but I think it should be assured for a much longer time period. So there also in my view the assessment framework is not perfect, but that's clear if you have a multi-stakeholder process uh, with different views, different interests, etc., that you land somewhere and you don't make everybody happy. So for me, it's a mixed picture overall. And so at, at the moment, the, the key players in the VCM include obviously the registries, as you said, Vera, Gold Standard. Then we've got these, these meta groups like the ICVCM and the VCMI. And then also, I think coming in with a lot of importance, especially in the last couple of years, given the concerns about credit quality and integrity have been the ratings agencies. And so I'm wondering, how do you see the interplay between these three groups as the voluntary carbon market progresses in the coming years? Yeah. So we have now four or five rating agencies and they rate individual projects. So they really go in the details of each project and then they give an, a rating. Most of them use kind of a to E ratings, like like rating agencies in, in the financial market. 
And, and, and I think that's what distinguishes them from the ICBCM. So the ICBCM doesn't assess individual projects. The ICBCM assesses classes of carbon credits called categories. So it's combinations of a carbon crediting program, a methodology to quantify emission reductions, certain other conditions, right? So it will say this class of credits is generally good whereas the rating agencies really look in the details of each credit. And then you also have an, an other initiatives. Uh, we have founded one with WWF and Environmental Defense Fund, which is called the Carbon Credit Quality Initiative, which do not establish a threshold benchmark like the ICBCN, but we also do ratings, but for classes of credits. So again, it's like a risk rating platform with a scoring tool, where you can look at and you see, okay, this carbon credit performs good in that area, but not so good in that area. And so, and then you have information platforms uh, generally on the quality of carbon credits, etc. So there, there are really different sources that buyers and other stakeholders can use to get informed about quality of carbon credits. That's great, by the way. The more data that's available, the better. And so what do you see as the natural evolution of the, the carbon registries themselves? Because as you had mentioned, many of them are kind of going back and either updating or changing or, or modernizing their methodologies. And that's one part of what they do. But how do you see the, the carbon registries changing to keep up with the, the modifications of the VCM? Yeah, that's one of the big uh, uncertainties and questions for the future, right? Because I think the volatile carbon market is really in a deep crisis. And to get out of this crisis, I think the carbon crediting programs are the most important players. I think they would need to significantly reform their rules, significantly strengthen their rules, really overhaul their methodologies, making them more conservative, improving their rules for non-providence, right? And the question is to what extent they are willing to do so. I think the market has only, in my personal view, has only a future if they are able to really do that. One challenge for them, and that's what several programs told me, one challenge for them is that they compete with each other, right? So if one carbon crediting program sets weaker rules in a certain area, then the project developers may run to that program because it's easier and you get more credits. And then the program with the stronger rules loses market share. <laughs> and so that's a real challenge. And that's maybe an area where the ICVCM, by establishing a global standard that should apply for everybody, could kind of help to address these market concerns. And also some programs kind of have been positive about these changes or positive to criticism and have said, yeah, we acknowledge uh, there our methodologies are not yet perfect. We will work on them. But there has also been, I would say, denial. So when, when Vera responded to the criticism about the methodologies, I think the, the tone has changed a bit. But initially, they just said the science is wrong and our credits are good, right? And I think that's really the wrong response if there's such overwhelming scientific evidence that there's overcredit. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. And so that is a, that's a very real thing. And so I'm, we've covered a lot of, uh, a lot of ground here and we've talked about many different markets. And so I'm going to try and bring us to a close soon and summarize it all. And so 
bringing it together and looking at your experience as the evolution of the CDM and the VCM and the Article 6 carbon market, I'm just curious to hear your take on the perspective of carbon markets as a tool for actually reducing carbon, but also for moving around money, so climate finance. Yes, I think overall, it's really important to acknowledge that the main way of addressing the climate changes to mitigating emissions is that we need policies. We need governments, we need uh, to adopt legislations, to adopt regulations, to reduce emissions, right? It will not, we will not get, we will never get the scale to voluntary action because companies compete in a competitive market, etc. So, so the, the most important framework is really ambitious climate policies by governments. Then regarding carbon crediting, I think what's also important to bear in mind is that emission trading systems like the EU emission trading systems where we have prices of 80 or 100 euro and where the whole economy is capped are much more effective. There's very clear evidence that the EU ETS is really an effective climate policy. So these policies are are kind of what we mainly should look at to address climate change next to regulations and others. And then climate finance plays a role. It, it also plays a role. I mean, a, a lot of fine finance comes also from the public sector, etc. And so I think it's more that we need to create the right regulatory framework for the private sector to finance climate mitigation and to, to unlock capital. But that needs the appropriate regulatory framework, right? And and not only voluntary action. So I think the voluntary climate action and the voluntary carbon market can play a certain role, but we should never forget that it's a smaller role within the big picture. And so looking into your crystal ball and looking ahead into the future, what are your predictions for the carbon markets? Are we going to get there? That's a really difficult question. I don't dare a prediction. Um, I think it will really depend on whether the quality issues in the market will be addressed. If they are addressed, I think it could increase. It will also depend on whether whether companies are willing to move away from offsetting claims and whether that works for the business so that they could purchase non-authorized carbon credits and, and make what we call contribution claims. So there are some uncertainty factors, but we know what the key decisive factors are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Lambert, we're going to close out now. And I always like to close out the episode by asking my guests the same question. And this comes from the fact that I really like the, the philosophical school of thought Stoicism. And so the, the legendary Stoic philosopher Epictetus once said, what concerns me is not the way things are, but the way people think things are. And so if we apply this to climate finance, what do you think is one thing that must be done to change the way people think about climate finance? I think we need to be sincere about climate finance, about the role it can play, about the integrity of carbon credits, but also about the accounting of climate finance, what size of climate is really provided, what shares mobilized, what is, what is lending money what is grants, etc. So we need transparency and we need to be clear about climate finance. Very well said, sir. Very well said. Well, Lambert, this was great. We, like I said, we covered so much here, but it was all awesome. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope our listeners all learned a lot. So I just want to say 
Thank you very, very much for joining me. And I hope you had some fun today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And it was nice to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. And we'll talk soon. And that's that on the episode. Because Dr. Schneider and I connected in October of last year, it was before COP28 took place in Dubai in November. In the end, no decisions were made on Article 6 at COP28, as a consensus could not be reached on some of the details. Negotiations will continue in Bonn, Germany in June of this year. Recently, Dr. Schneider and I briefly connected, and he is hopeful that Article 6 will be finalized at COP29 later this year in November in Azerbaijan. We at Gordian Knot Strategies also feel optimistic that an agreement will be made on Article 6.2 this year. But let's see what the coming months bring. Next month, I'll be back with Grant Canary and Jonathan Loebner from Mast Reforestation, which is a tech-led reforestation company. Be sure to tune in to hear how mass reforestation is helping forests in the current world of more frequent and more intense fires. Before you go, I hope you take a moment to subscribe and leave a review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Spotify, hit the bell so you get reminders when new episodes release. In addition to untangling climate finance, we record weekly audio versions of our newsletter, Sliced, so there's always a steady stream of new content and thought pieces coming from our channel. And if you leave a review, I'll read it at the top of an episode. As always, if you want to connect, you can shoot me an email at jtipton at gordiannotstrategies.com. A link to my email address is in the show notes. Thanks to everyone for listening and the continued support. We genuinely appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Gordian Knot Strategies.